Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. Hello and welcome to season two of the Warfighter podcast. Well, not quite season two just yet. This is the trailer, the prelude, shall we say. And it's really exciting. Colin, welcome. Oh, yeah. Tom, good to hear from you again. Yeah, it's been, I don't know, a couple of months where you and I haven't spoken daily. Been missing you, mate. Oh, well, you know, good to have the gang back. But so I understand you've been deep in commercial negotiations. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out when you're working with some of these bigger organizations, it takes a while to get the secure the funding. But we are there now. We have season two in the bag. Unfortunately, we're 12 pages into an NDA, both you and I right now, so we can't really reveal who it is quite yet. However, watch this space. September the 7th is when we're going to be releasing episode one, and it's pretty damn exciting. There's big news coming out on the episode. Yes, we are privileged to be sort of, uh, I guess, announcing things on behalf of some industry players now. But, you know, we work with NATO, so I think I think we can <laughs> handle it. But I mean, what should we do in this trailer, Colin? Should we talk about the things to expect of season two? So before we go into that, during the slight lull, you've been working on some other podcast projects, I hear. <laughs> I didn't think you'd bring this up. Yes, I have been cheating on you. Well, so I've released another podcast called The Wilder Podcast, only relevant to anyone that's particularly interested in rewilding, biodiversity, climate change, and things like that. But now you've mentioned it, it is worth probably plugging one episode where I interviewed retired Lieutenant General Richard Noogie, who has led Defence's view and research into the effects climate change will have on Defence. And it is a really interesting episode, extremely relevant to all the listeners here, because it is something that's going to be affecting us globally and nationally. And it is something that Defence is going to have to adapt to. So if you are interested in that, I'm sure we will put a link in the show notes. Have a listen to him and see if it's something that's of interest to you. There's a little bit of my backstory there as well, Colin, a little nugget for you. (laughs) So what's the nugget of the backstory? Well, the backstory, no, my backstory about how, you know, young drop, school dropout, left school at 16, oh. joined the army, made it man of myself. One of those backstories. Yeah, I was... <laughs> it's boring backstory, mate. <laughs> You're just going nowhere. Anyway. I was with my 2-1 with an engineering degree. Yeah, what will I do in my life? Still don't know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, season two, what could people enjoy from this? Well, more of the same, I hope but better. I think the main thing is we're trying to streamline things a bit. I think we've taken a bit of feedback of what people liked, which is not us, uh, really, uh, the the guests we get on, far more important than than us, and really trying to get into those nooks and crannies across the whole training simulation, which when I sat down to write a list of proposed subjects, it didn't take me very long to fill up what we could do for the season. And, you know, there's plenty of people we want to talk to still that we just didn't get a chance to in the last season. So that's kind of the high level stuff. But Colin, can you give me a flavour of some of the kind of key topics or themes we might be covering during the season? Well, I'm sure none of our audience have failed to notice that we're in the midst of some of the some of the major changes, both not only in the Air Force and the way they train, but certainly in land, there's a major programme going on, which I'm hoping we're going to sort of do a little bit of a deep dive into s- several of those areas of training that people that may not be aware of. So things like uh, synthetic wrap, how does instrumented land training work? Also more abstract concepts like digital twins and looking at training data for AI and ML. So maybe taking some of those themes that we looked at before and looking at how they're applied in different areas. But I think there will definitely see a heavy land component, which I know will interest you. 
me i mean that's what i what i understand the rest of it when it starts going off land is when uh when i start staring off into the distance uh just then actually when you're saying that no i'm joking it's all relevant and all very important says says the air liaison officer former (laughs) i turned up to afghanistan and i hadn't i hadn't done combined arms wave wave it left if you want it to go left and wave it right i have i am a qualified rigger marshaller i I was convinced that that vr was perfect for kind of training rigger marshallers it is and we have two at least two in the country and I was trying to sell these, like, you know, off-the-shelf Quest headsets into, like, all the centers that couldn't requalify their troops fast enough. And I just couldn't get any traction. But I'm sure it's because they already had people they wanted to work with. Anyway, um, I digress. So I think all that's left is to talk about the socials. We have our website, thewarfighterpodcast.com. But most importantly, and where all the key information comes out is on LinkedIn. If you just type in Warfighter Podcast in the search box, you can find us. There is also the newsletter there, so you don't miss any of the episodes that go out. Colin, we have a little bonus interview, don't we? Yeah, so we recorded this a while back and, you know, unfortunately we do we do record a number of sessions and sort of don't know where to fit them in. So mm. it's great to sort of release that. So we introduced Sonny in full in the actual recording, but his background is quite interesting, bringing a perspective from how his training in the Pakistani Air Force was heavily influenced by British and American trainers. And it was really interesting to see that from the other side. And I guess the underlying theme is sometimes there's a bunch of people doing some really good work that no one ever speaks about. Uh, it's probably the best thing we could describe this as but it's a really interesting interview just one i thought we should get out there just for people to mull over while they're waiting for season two to start yeah i really enjoyed the chat with sunny because he was just again it's an angle that we've never really experienced i haven't been trained by another nation and i think it's a super important thing for us always to be thinking about especially as coalition forces are going out to training other nations is just what how best can we do it how best do we stimulate debate about doing it as opposed to just turning up assuming that we know best and the way that we do it is the best way or the right way it should be about actually how do we adapt our processes and procedures within the context of the cultural requirements of the partner nation we're working with and i think this is a great insight into that well, I'm very pleased to introduce someone who's a long way from us at the moment, squadron leader Fahad Sani Masood, who's from the Modern College of Business and Science in Muscat, Amman. Welcome. Pleasure being here. Thank you. And before we jump into our interesting topic, which for our listeners, it will not be really about technology, but sort of another aspect of training, which we've asked Sunny to come and talk about. Could you just give us a bit of your background? How have you got to where you are? What was your original training education? Yes, absolutely. So uh, my journey with aviation started back in the year 1999. Once I joined the Pakistan Air Force Academy, the Salpur, it was the bitter winters of the northwest of Pakistan. That is where everything initiated. And I have not looked back ever since. My diversification into aviation starts from being fighter pilot. My main weapon system is the Mirage 3 and 5. I am a qualified flight instructor or a QFI uh, within the military domains of it. Beyond this, I served for uh, 17 or 18 odd years, exited and initiated my CPL commercial pilot license, which I hold as I speak. I am a rated flight instructor on Cessna 172 and 152 both. During my training in the academy, I had the opportunity to visit uh, a few countries as soon as I graduated, became an officer, went across to United States for my SUPT, which is on the T-38 Talon aircraft. 
so few with them for about a year. Since then, varying assignments within the military or may it be on the operations side as well as the domains risk management or safety, CRM. And since then, it's been varying exercises with different countries in land and off the Gulf as well. And here I sit with you in the year 2023 after leaving service and shooting an MBA in aviation management, postgraduate diploma in aircraft action investigation and a postgraduate certificate in aviation risk management. Been there, done that at a few international fronts, speaking at different seminars and conferences on aspects of applied military air power as well as risk management and safety. And I guess that is the short and the long of it as well. No, that's great. And that, you know, it's great to see quite a varied experience there and probably a, a common one for some of our aviators that might listen. So, I guess the first question is, as someone that was probably on some of the receiving end of ins instruction from, oh, I don't know, ex-RAF and USAF pilots and crew, what were your main observations and the differences to that sort of approach compared to the West and the East? Well, first and foremost, uh, there is no good and bad here. We are looking at what works and what doesn't work. Uh, if you look at the context of training and specific context that relates to military flight training, the, we require to understand what the background of the professional that is being trained is. The system what the British left us with at time of partition in 1947. We had two Royal Air Force Chief of Air Staffs or Air Chief Marshals who were there leading the Pakistan Air Force or the Royal Pakistan Air Force initially. And then it was switched or transitioned gradually. So the training paradigm holds till date. There has been influence of the United States Air Force as well. Uh, we went across or the training program came across from the USAF in the Sabre F-86 platform, then the F-104 platform, the Starfighter as it is famously known as, then the F-16 as well, the Viper. So that is the the big picture of it. If we look at the other side, the receiving side, the let me put this correctly. The culture that was instigated or imbibed initially holds its ground very deep. The uh, method of instruction and training that the British left us with is holding till date, may it be on the cadet training side or the officer training side as well. It has its pluses, uh, but we have learned to live with it on various fronts. If you look at the American side, we also had the, how do I put it, lateralization of command and the vertical hierarchy, which is there within or which was there within the royal military, which they have done away with, as I've recently come to know. It holds ground within the Pakistan Air Force. So the difference that I felt once uh, we reached USAF uh, training centers was first and foremost, there is no sir in the USAF. They don't sir each other. Either it is the DAC call sign or they use Captain Mitchell or Captain whatever or Major this or General this. That is about it. 
the other big difference that we felt once we were training with them, even if there's a three star coming to a squadron for an inspection, for a visit, operations go as normal to the degree that the only thing that is done is a PA announcement at the arrival of the three stars uh, in the building. Everybody stands still for a few minutes or a few seconds. And the general comes up himself, announces in the PA as you were, and things go as as normal hunky-dory every day. Uh, where else on the other side, in the Eastern culture, which is still imbibing the previous age-old British paradigm, the rumor of having a three-star coming in initiates a chain of events, which is hampering operations, to say the least. So yes, I was polishing the doorknobs and the... <laughs> yes. The, 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 the bureaucracy, as we call it, starts to creep in. So operations get hampered. But not to say this is on the downtrend. Uh, things are improving because we have come to understand this to the degree that initially we had in a flight of four, we had one leader in case of a military aviation flight where we had four aircraft. So there was one leader and we had two, three and four. Now the paradigm's changed and it's, for example, prime one, prime two, prime three, prime four. So that leadership is now, how do I put this, disintegrated or, uh, or allowed to go into the four elements of a formation. Uh, so that is how we're starting to learn from what USAF has done with their military or air power employment paradigms and what Royal Air Force has learned from them as well. And we continue to pick this up from there. So I think that, that leads us on to sort of the, the deeper question is, which is about how you should adjust for the culture that you might be training in. Do you have any views on that in terms of what might work or not? Yes, the person who is joining the academies, may it be in Pakistan or anywhere, he's from a civilian background. But that civilian background may be, I, I digress into three segregations, one from Pakistan, two from the uh, from UK and three from America. So the brought up is very different. The individual who is groomed in a Eastern culture in Pakistan uh, has a lot of interdependency between him and his family or her and her family because we have both genders flying in the Pakistan Air Force as fighter pilots. So the interdependency remains till a very later part of his life or her life. Where else, on the other hand, in the Western culture, maybe UK or Australia, the individual is groomed to understand that he will grow independent as soon as he grows 18 and beyond. So this cultural difference of brought up for a person who joins the academy is deep-rooted enough that once a fighter pilot goes into combat in a dogfight, may it be a BVR scenario or a within visual range situation, he has to leave back a lot of anchors that hold him back in the eastern side of things. On the west, I wouldn't say it's a gung-ho approach, but I would rather put it this way, that there is a lot uh, that is less with him on his or her mind before he or she is going into air combat. So it has its cons more than its pros. So that is how I perceive things of culture, grooming, and the brought up of the individual. 
before he is dovetailed or brought into the military side of operation. And how does that organization deal with the differences? Obviously, there's a certain approach taken in the West. And, and how have you seen that, say, the Pakistani Air Force might adjust the system or how do they deal with that issue? Right. So the indoctrination starts from the word go. As soon as you reach the academy, they break you from being a civilian part and mold you into a military man first. And the process is challenging for the common man. There are a lot of people who cannot stand that change or that break and they disengage from the academy in the very first few weeks. The people who do stay back, they are the ones who are willing to alter their own self and get molded into the military part of it. And then the process starts from point or ground zero. And this is a tedious process of three, three and a half years of training in the academy, bringing a civilian mindset into a military mindset and then into the air power domain. So it is a continuous change or indoctrination that takes place for uh, a professional who is there in the academy. And then it continues on as he grows in service to the utility of air power from being a tactical operator to being a military, uh, sorry, a middleman or an operations level professional and then to the strategic gear. So it's a, it's a stepwise process. Would you say it's taking longer to sort of change them or? Yes, it does. We all have heard of this infamous phrase, shock and awe. So there is a lot of shock and awe for the uh, newbie who joins the academy. And from that point onwards, once his civilian mold is broken, uh, over the passage of the next three years, it is a very tedious process to continue on this path. Uh, and it does take longer for this mold to break and to regenerate into someone who is of greater value to the organization as he is able to employ air power in at various tiers of tactics, operations and strategy. I mean, that, that would certainly chime with my experience in, in the Rotary world where your entry standard at the very early level might have a different frame of reference. So, for example, they may not all, you know, let less a fewer percentage of intake that can drive a car just because they tend to learn to do that later in life. Or they may not have grown up with an Xbox or something and, and then have a different frame of reference. So, yeah, certainly might take them longer to get through a training, might have more sorties because they didn't have the same experiences earlier in life. And that's probably shown if you're a teacher you sort of know the difference between kids that have got to preschool before they're six and those that haven't it's just a natural thing if you have the different experiences that's correct it makes a marked difference but less to say because once we graduated from the academy present time we have a diversified group of professionals who are at different places may it be on the viper or the gf-17 thunder or the mirage platform or c-130s so one of the one of my course mates who had not even learned how to ride a bicycle has recently commanded a JF-17 fighter squadron within the Pakistan Air Force. So 
I really hold them in in extreme esteem because we a majority of us knew how to ride a bike, uh, if not how to drive a car. But he, from where he was to where he is today, is remarkable. So there are people who have survived and evolved in the process to the degree where they're able to make a very, very significant mark for themselves and for the organization as well. Uh, something that close to my heart, and it's very topical at the moment, but how, if you have sort of an exchange officer visiting or or vice versa, where you've gone and worked with in the US, how have you seen them change their approach? What are the things that they do? Or do they, do they just train in the same way they normally would? Well, if you're speaking of the USA, their method of operation is, I wouldn't say laid back, but it is lateralized. Uh, as I mentioned before, there is no sir. The rules of military remain same. Salute remains same. We, the element of respect remains same. The thing that I experienced it to be different once we went across as well, what they were more prone or more learning or understanding towards the soft skill side of the individual from the word get-go which turns out to be a, a very, how do I put this? Or it turns out to be an, a fact, not an important factor, a factor at a very later part of what the East looks at it like. Yeah, because the culture, once again, as I mentioned before, relates to a fighter pilot or a professional to be rock solid in all domains. So emotions is not considered to be an element. But if we went USAF and we trained with them and we flew with them, so their thought on this side of, of the training was a lot more specific and a lot more from the start. We all understand emotional intelligence is a game changer for players, especially for the military, because they go through some of the harshest trainings that have ever been evolved in the, uh, in the paradigms of training anyone. So they need to be emotionally strong. And this is taken up as a specific effort. So where we think the East enables or the culture enables the person to bring it up to a specific level before, it doesn't really happen that way. It, it takes its due time. We need to be specific on this. Uh, PTSD, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder is never really considered as a consequence of military operations in the East. On the West, at least people are speaking on it. So that's a cultural variation as well. Did you find when you were doing work with the, the US or UK, did you feel like they ever had to, uh, were they adapting the way they were teaching things to suit you and your team and your background? Or did they just teach you the way that, that, it, that they would teach themselves and you learn quickly to adapt to the Western culture? It's a, it's a two-way street. Uh, we still keep in touch with our instructors and the people whom we've flown with uh, in USAP and the West. It was both we were trying to get into their system. They were trying to absorb us into how they used to do things, keeping in regard our cultural background. Um, no matter uh, if it was for the Friday prayer, uh, because that's a part of our culture and ethos. We need to go for the Juma prayers without question. And Friday is a working day in, in the West. 
So they used to let, let us make us fly early in the morning, first light takeoffs, uh, get the debrief done, and there you go, you have your weekend. And so that is just one example. On the other hand, we were also trying to imbibe as much as possible the methods of their operations or the doctrines that they were they had evolved into because there is no questions asked. The West is the leading edge in aviation. Uh, may it be in training or may it be in hardware. Yes, the trends have been changing in the recent few years, but since 1903, Wright Brothers flight at Kitty Hawk, the West has done it better. Frank Whittle's jet engine, the West has done it better. There's no question. So we wanted to learn as much as possible from them. And they were also very welcoming in understanding our culture as well. So it's a two-way street thing going. The next question I have is, how did you see technology in all this? Was that a hindrance or a help? Big help. If I go directly into simulators, this was something that was, well, not unheard of, but the sims that we had in the country were more game-based. For example, it was the F-22 simulator or the F-16 Fighting Falcon simulator. It was more game-based or computer-based, laptop or desktop-based versions. But as soon as we went across, we were faced with high-fidelity level D sims on the T-38 Talon. It was so good that we used to do air combat on them. We used to do formation flying on them even before we entered the cockpit in the real world. So the virtual world was galore for us. Yes, initially it took us a bit of time to get adapted on procedures, how to go ahead and run a sim. But once we get got the hang of it, it was more of a success story for us. Something that helped us gain competence to a specific degree before we reached out into the real world. So technology, a big thumbs up. I believe it really helped us. And we brought the idea back as well, learning from the user. That certainly chimes without my experience where I think in one of the sort of wash-ups of the training, because I think we'd gone to deliver the rotary training the way we'd always done. One of the debrief points was, well, actually, if we'd use more desktop-based simulation, very simple stuff, like there was a radar in the back of the aircraft. If you just sat the student in front of that, he can screw up as many times as he like. It doesn't cost us anything. He could be there all night until he gets it right and then put him on the aircraft. And obviously that's an insanely obvious thing, but for some reason we didn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a challenge to some. Obviously a person who has some background in using, may it be a laptop device or any computer device, he will be quicker to latch on to this idea. Whereas the culture thing once again plays a role for the grooming as well. So at the start of this interview, you mentioned that the Pakistani Air Force was born out of the independence generated from the British Empire at the time and was built very much based on these British officers who said, this is the way we do it, therefore it must be right. I'm really quite curious to, to kind of hear your thoughts as to how, if you could rewrite the way that it happened, what, what, what ways in order to, to better fit your country and the cultures within it, how could it be structured differently? Okay, so... Uh... I wouldn't take it in in any other way. I I wouldn't say that there has to be or had to be something different because we as uh, a state has or a country or 
as a Pakistani Air Force have had their success stories, both on the national and the international front. I wouldn't like to go into intricate details of that, but the product of the Pakistan Air Force may be on the operations side or the maintenance side for that matter, has been above standard, if I were to say, this is the most politically correct statement I can give. Example, uh, the Mirage 3 uh, or 5 weapon system is exactly 50 years old as we speak right now. The maintenance personnel, the engineers and the technicians are maintaining that same weapon system with very high success rate. On the other hand, for the role that it place the operators or the fighter pilots are utilizing it in the same domain so the product which was initiated in 47 till date because of all the training variations that have come in because learning is a continuous process and we have learned over the passage of the previous about 75 80 years that we are evolving or we have evolved with the passage of time learning from the British learning from the Americans and in the process dovetailing it to our own culture mm -hmm. and ensuring that we are able to make the best possible use of resources to ensure that the doctrine that is uh, being devised or given by the policy tier of the Air Force is implemented on the tactical as well as the operational tier to the maximum possible. So short answer to the question, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do anything different. And what advice would you give for a young officer, RAF pilot, whatever it is, who's going to be involved in training any foreign nation coming up? What, what advice could you give to for them to better? You've been on the receiving end of, the, of this training, I suppose. So I'd be interested to hear your kind of thoughts to ways of reflections on which people could have done things better or better prepare themselves for it. Yeah, so I'll quickly narrate a story here. After Gulf War One, we had one of the Royal Air Force pilots come into our flight instructor school. He was a POW from the Iraq war. He got shot down in one of the first days of the tornado interdiction strikes that was being followed. Uh, so we got to learn a lot from him as well. And, and I'm not talking of too far back. This is uh, the late 90s. I won't take names because that would be unfair. So that's fighter pilot Gator. Right. So uh, what I'll be doing here is I'll be quickly jotting down a few points that he taught us, which have really improved our training programs. The cross uh, or the exchange postings had been going on for a decent time. We had this professional who came in and he told us what was changing in the Royal Air Force's method of operations and training both. We learned from that the flight instructor school, Risalpur, is where the QFIs are trained, who's further up trained the cadets and the pilot officers in the Air Force. So we learned a lot from him, specific to how trained professionals who are now more adaptive to change, uh, not the standard run-of-the-mill fighter pilot or a military aviator. So considering all this and the evolution that we have gone through, I would recommend this to the up-and-coming professional aviators in the military domain. And you may find this a bit, well, I would take it to the extent of being stupid. 
but it would still be that continue to read. That is what is going to make the difference. The more we read, the better we get. As the infamous quote goes, readers are leaders. Flip it. Leaders are readers. So the people who are going across a different cultures, read about those cultures. What are they built upon? What are their foundation stones? What are the capstones that they follow? What is something that cannot be taken away with it no matter what? As an example, look at our eastern border, Afghanistan. A long time, the West remained trying to indoctrinate the local Pashtuns and the Afghanis into becoming more streamlined, more dependable. Uh, but as soon as they moved out, the exit that took place, havoc has returned to the state. So we need to understand what the culture is before we integrate training systems in it. And for that, we need to read. And that is the only way forward, which I believe that will enable any person to go into any other country with all positive intent of training the locals to enable the best possible return on investment of time, effort, finance, and technology. I guess another way of saying that is if you have an interest in the, the student body and their background, then you know, and then you'll read about it. But, you know, I, I always found it useful where I could learning the language, not because I thought I'd ever get good at it, but because actually you learn all sorts of interesting things when you actually try and understand the language. For example, not all of us say the time the same way. Sometimes when we say the time, it's an hour out just because of our, our conception of the hour is different. It is stupid things like that, isn't it? But actually, when I say half eight, I mean half seven, you know, or yeah. by, you know, I'm yeah. say very rapid. Absolutely. Very contextualized. Whether it's a stupid error or just understanding the way thing, people think about it, things, it's always helpful. Well, look, I think that's quite a lot for our listeners to think about and uh, really great to hear your perspective because probably hear too much of our own perspectives these days. <laughs> Sunny, thank you for spending the time with us and look forward to uh, seeing you around the bazaars one day. Yeah, certainly. And anytime you're across the world into the GCC region, may it be Muscat or any other country, do let me know. We would love to catch up on a cup of tea. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Oman is definitely on my list, actually. 